Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Today's guest isn't a scientist per se, but he certainly is a public intellectual. And although we're not going to talk about science directly, we're going to talk about a topic that I think a lot of us have probably started rethinking the meaning of life, and what happens after we die. And since you're all critical thinkers, ready to examine your own beliefs, you've probably already come across the writings of Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is a leading authority on the New Testament and the history of early Christianity and the author and editor of more than 30 books. He recently published yet another book, and this one is called Heaven and Hell, A History of the Afterlife. Writing a history of the afterlife is, of course, next to impossible, but if anyone can do it, it's Bart. And according to a Pew Research poll, 72% of Americans believe in a literal heaven and 58% believe in a literal hell. What are the implications of these beliefs? Bart Ehrman, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. A lot like you, I was raised in the Christian faith and then eventually, you know, had my beliefs change over multiple different, I guess, life changes and 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 so on. Um, so I resonate with a, with a lot of the things that you describe in some of your previous interviews with other people and that kind of journey. But even though I felt like I sort of had, uh, you know, I prided myself on, on kind of understanding Christianity in particular, the Catholic, uh, the Catholic faith, which is how I grew up and, you know, where this idea of heaven and hell and the soul comes from, like your book completely through all of my preconceptions aside. And I want to start with like the first fundamental thing that blew me away, which is that you note in your book that there is no mention really of heaven and hell in either the Old Testament or the New Testament of the Bible. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What? That is a bit of a shocker. And it it, it kind of, I mean, it kind of depends on how you define things, but you, you can say categorically, it's, the idea that you die and your soul goes to heaven or hell, this is kind of traditional Christian idea, is nowhere in the Old Testament. It's not what Jesus taught. It's not what the Apostle Paul taught. It's not what the book of Revelation teaches. There's like one passage that kind of seems like it, but it's a parable. <laughs> and so uh, 
And so, yeah, uh, I know. Uh, this is one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is because it's a misconception. And, and it's an important misconception because most people uh, who have any religious affiliation in, in our world, uh, most are Christian. And almost all of those Christians think that this certainly is taught in the Bible because they believe it. And so it must be in the Bible. But uh, it turns out it's not. I mean, it's like one of the fundamental tenets that I would have said. Like, if you had said to me, what are the three most important beliefs uh, of Christianity that are based in biblical teachings, like heaven and hell, or at least the idea of the afterlife, the idea that the there is some soul that exists outside of the body, that that is a fundamental belief. And yet that is in question now after reading your book. So I, I want to start with this kind of description of of dualism and this idea of the soul and how it actually doesn't come from the Bible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Strangely enough, it does not. Um, so we have, yeah, we have a dualistic view, most, most people in the West, that uh, that soul and body are two separate things and the soul exists after the body dies. Um, that is, uh, that's, that's a view that we may talk about later, but it, it doesn't come from uh, Jew- Israelite or Jewish uh, beliefs. It comes from uh, it comes from Greek ideas. The Bible is based more on Israelite ideas, and uh, in the Israelite view, the ancient Israelite view, the soul uh, the, the soul does not exist apart from the body. It's not a separate entity. The soul for ancient Israelites is more like the breath, what we would think of as the breath. So when you when when in our thinking, when you stop breathing. I mean, I think when your brain dies is when you're dead. But just for simplicity's sake, when you stop breathing, uh, you're dead. Uh, but your breath doesn't go anywhere. Uh, in other words, it's, it doesn't exist apart from you. And that's that's what ancient Israelites and then Jews thought about the uh, about what we might call the soul for them. It, it's the breath. Um, and so when you when you die, you simply stop the the, the thing that animates your body uh, no longer exists. It's simply the thing that animates your body. Yeah, and I, I want to like just delve a little bit more deeply into that whole concept, because to me, that's really interesting. A, a couple times on this podcast, we've had people on who have, you know, tried to pinpoint what is the difference between life and death? Where do we draw the line between when someone is dead versus when they're alive? Um, and of course, you know, before we understood how what a, what an important role the brain uh, plays in who we think of ourselves, you know, as as being alive, or, or how we think about you know, consciousness being that fundamental thing in a sense. Um, yeah, the, the the breath was the thing or, or heartbeat even. Um, so I just wanted to sort of ask you to, to sort of walk us through the history of this notion. Um, as you mentioned, the kind of Hebrew version or the Israelite version, and then how that changes with the Greeks and where the Bible fits in into all of these conceptions. Yeah, of course, you know, in the ancient world, of course, they had no idea what the brain did. You know, they, they, they had no idea. And so let alone that, you know, if you flatline, you're dead. <laughs> so there's nothing nothing like that. But breath was usually associated with uh, with life. It's hard to date the oldest parts of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. But they, uh, you know, they're at least around the 10th century, in many people's opinion, around the 10th century BCE. And they were written independently of uh, Greek influence. And the Hebrew Bible has this idea that that the the way life came into being in the first place was God created Adam out of the dirt. And the way Adam became a living being is first he was just kind of this model, but then God breathed into him. And so it's the breath of God 
that brings Adam to life. And so life is in the breath. And so when the breath leaves, then he's no longer alive. It's dust to ashes to ashes and dust to dust. You just return to the dirt. And so in the ancient Israelite view, uh, throughout most of the Hebrew Bible, uh, when you die, that's the end of the story. Uh, you don't have a soul to live on, and your body's obviously dead. Sometimes people misunderstand that because of the translations of the Bible that they read. There are uh, some words in Hebrew that get translated as hell, uh, one word in particular, uh, but it's a complete mistranslation. It's the word, the word, the Hebrew word is Sheol, uh, and so sometimes people talk about Sheol in the Bible, but the Sheol in the in Hebrew does not refer to the place that your soul goes when it dies, let alone a place of eternal torment. Uh, Sheol is most usually used as a synonym for the grave or the pit that your body gets thrown into. And so you go to Sheol because, uh, you know, that's where your body ends up. But there's nothing else to you. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) It's dead. And so there's no afterlife for most of the Hebrew Bible. So then we get to Jesus and... You know, once again, if I had to describe to an alien being or a five-year-old what are the fundamental tenets, I would say the most important thing is uh, here is a person who uh, died to save the world and was resurrected. And so so can you um, tell me a little bit about why, like what the evidence is that that Jesus, in fact, did not believe in a soul. And then we can sort of talk about like, so what was resurrected? Uh, right. So um, Jesus was a Jew and Jews uh, didn't believe in souls <laughs> in, in, in our sense. Uh, but he's certain, but the New Testament authors certainly think that he died in order to bring salvation and that the salvation would come after our life is over, after we die. But it wasn't that your soul would live on. Uh, Jesus himself was a kind of Jew that um, scholars have called apocalyptic Jews. Um, the apocalyptic form of Judaism started about 200 years uh, before Jesus. It was a view a view that developed within Judaism after most of the Old Testament had already been written. It was a view that tried to explain why it is people who are on God's side who live good lives and try to do what God wants them to do, can have such miserable lives and suffer and be in pain and then or be persecuted and killed and then they die. And that's the end of the story. (laughs) That doesn't make sense. Uh, And then you have these, these lousy schmucks who are persecuting the good people who are having very good lives, who are rich and powerful and famous, and they're they do great, then they die, and that's the end of the story for them too. That that's not right. And so Jews developed the idea that if God really is right, righteous, then he's going to make it better after this life. But the way he makes it better is not by rewarding souls because they don't believe in souls. They think that what's going to happen is that God is going to bring bodies back to life. God will breathe the breath of life back into them. And those who have sided with God in this world and been persecuted for it or uh, suffered, uh, they will be rewarded. And the people who have um, have lived wicked lives will be punished, uh, but they'll be in the body, and the the life that will be lived in the body after this resurrection of the dead, after the dead are raised from the dead, brought back to life, this life will be here on earth. It's not going to be up with God in heaven or down below in hell, 
And so the idea is that God originally created a paradise for Adam and Eve. They blew it. They got kicked out of paradise. But God's going to return people to paradise. And he will take away all the forces of evil in the world that make people sin and that create pain and misery and suffering. And there'll be no more of any of that. Uh, People will live forever. And it'll be great. It'll be utopia. They will enter in this new kingdom ruled by God, the kingdom of God here on earth. And the people who are opposed to God are going to be raised from the dead also to be shown the error of their ways. And then they're going to be mercilessly slaughtered. (laughs) They're going to be annihilated for all time. And so that's what Jesus himself taught. And uh, that's uh, he was an apocalyptic Jew. uh, And that's what his his followers all taught. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting in your book how you make this point that when um, when talking about eternity, there's a lot of misconception about what that means, that the eternal death just means that now you're dead like once but forever, <laughs> not that you continue to stay in this eternally bad place that would be hell is, you know, so can you uh, t- talk a little bit more about that and, and sort of how people misinterpret it? It's again, part of it is another problem of, inter- of, of translation. The New Testament uh, is written in Greek. And uh, sometimes there's a Greek word that gets translated as hell in the New Testament. <laughs> and so when you're reading English, it sure sounds like Jesus is talking about hell because there's the word right on the page. Uh, the word that gets translated as hell in the New Testament is a word uh, that it's, it's not a common word, Gehenna. Gehenna refers to a place that's talked about in the Old Testament that is a valley outside of Jerusalem that was thought to be the most God-forsaken place on earth. Uh, it's still there. It's this valley southeast of Jerusalem. Um, it, it was the most God-forsaken place on earth because it was a place where Israelites practiced human sacrifice. And so, uh, wait, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. And so it was considered to be a desecrated place where the most wicked people had been. And what Jesus says is that um, if, you, uh, if you're on the wrong side, if you're wicked, you're in danger of having your body cast into Gehenna. And so when it gets translated as hell, it sounds like he's saying, you know, if you're wicked, you're going to go to hell. <laughs> but that's not what he's saying. He's saying you, that you, you're not going to get a decent burial, which is the worst thing for anybody in the ancient world, not to get a decent burial. And even worse than that, you're going to be tossed into this most god-awful place on the planet. And that's where your remains will will be corrupted. So Jesus, though, did think that the people that that happened to and everyone else would be raised from the dead bodily. What happens then? He says that the righteous will enter into the kingdom of God. And he's he's not talking about your soul going to heaven. He's talking about the kingdom here on earth, a kingdom, like a kingdom that God is ruling um, here on earth in paradise, and the wicked will then be destroyed. And he's quite explicit. He never says they're going to be tortured forever. He says they're going to be annihilated. And so Jesus thinks that the, that the ultimate penalty that sinners will pay is that they will be destroyed for all time. And it's an eternal punishment because it will never be reversed. You know, for people who haven't read Misquoting Jesus uh, or any of your other books, can we talk a little bit about how we know what we know about what Jesus thought and what he he said and then what happened, Um, particularly when it comes to, you know, his last days and the resurrection? So can you kind of like walk us through, like, to what extent can we glean information about historical Jesus from sources outside of the Bible 
and to what extent we have to limit ourselves to what it says in the Bible, and then how we can sort of evaluate the evidence in the Bible with respect to what seems most likely to have happened versus what was a much later interpretation of other people's stories. Yeah, this is, uh, it's it's a really important question. And as it turns out, it's really complicated. <laughs> you would just think, you know, if you want to know what Jesus said, you just read the Bible. There it is. It's in black and white. You just read it. <laughs> and then you'd know. Uh, yeah, it turns out it's not that simple. Uh, as scholars have known for over 300 years now, there, there are scholars, uh, I, I know, I know dozens and dozens of scholars who spend their entire lives trying to figure out what Jesus really said. Uh, And, you know, if you just read the Bible, you wouldn't need anybody doing that. You just read the Bible. Um, So the reason it's complicated is that uh, we don't have anything that Jesus himself ever wrote. The Gospels that we have were uh, not written by people who were Jesus followers. They don't claim the, the, the Gospels themselves don't claim to be written by any of his disciples. Jesus' language would have been Aramaic. Uh, his disciple, his disciples all spoke Aramaic. None of them was educated. The Gospels are written by highly educated Greek-speaking people living uh, much later. The Gospels, Jesus died around the year 30. The first Gospel was Mark, written around the year 70. The last Gospel in the New Testament was John, written around 90 or 95. So there's a, a 40 to 65-year gap between the time uh, Jesus was living and the first account of his life. So the question is, well, where do these people get their information from? Uh, How do they know what Jesus said or did? And the answer is, uh, people told stories about it. And uh, as people told stories, uh, they passed them along by word of mouth, uh, week after week, uh, year after year, decade after decade, before anybody wrote them down. And uh, we all know (laughs) what happens to stories that pass by word of mouth. Um, I mean, even in the days of, uh, of modern uh, mass communication, uh, somebody will say something and it'll be massively misquoted the next day, even though people can check <laughs> and people believe the misquote. Well, do that for 40 years and see what happens. And so that's the problem. And the reason we know it's a problem is because these different accounts report uh, the words and deeds of Jesus differently, sometimes in completely contradictory ways. And so scholars have to devise methods for getting behind these later reports in order to figure out what actually happened. And I'll just say, you know, that it's no different from anybody else in the ancient world. We have to we have exactly the same problem with trying to figure out what Socrates really said or what Julius Caesar really said or anything else. It's just that's the problem with dealing with the ancient world. But it's especially especially problematic when it comes to the Bible, because people just assume that these are the words of God. Well, uh, you know, we, we, uh, you know, it's very hard to even know what Jesus said. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so we don't know necessarily what he said. We have these different accounts of what happened. And I, one of the things that I've been trying to wrap my head around is if Jesus did not believe in a soul existing outside of the body, like what was going through his head when he was getting crucified, right? Like, you know, because that, that when, as a Catholic, that's, some, that's a story that I've, you know, heard told and, you know, I've, I've gone to Oberammergau and watched that multi-hours long passion play. And, you know, I mean, this is really the core of the belief. And in fact, one of the things that I find really powerful about the Catholic faith is sitting there and contemplating the sacrifice that a person, you know, in his position would have had to make, you know, to stand there and face your own mortality and to choose that. And even though you're being, you know, spat on and so forth. And, you know, to me that it, it, there's something really kind of profound and powerful and human about that moment. And so reading your book made me kind of rethink this whole idea. Like, can can we go and speculate about that? What do you think that the historical Jesus would have thought about all of that and the decisions that he made and, and that have now become such a powerful part of the doctrine? Uh, well, I, first of all, I completely agree with you. It's the most powerful part of the Christian tradition, and it's very moving. I, I when, Back when I was a Christian, I, I always found Good Friday to be far more powerful than Easter. Because uh, you know, Easter's just kind of like, oh, you know, we're happy now, and it's like an easy answer. Uh, but, you know, boy, Good Friday when he gets killed, that's, that for me was always very powerful. Uh, I think we actually know uh, what's going through his head. Uh, as as well as we can know anything from the ancient world about what's going through anybody's head. Uh, it's Jesus did believe in an afterlife. Uh, Jesus believed that at the end of time, there was going to be a resurrection of the dead. God was going to raise people from the dead and bring them into his eternal kingdom. And so Jesus thought that, yes, he's going to die now. But like other apocalyptic Jews, he thought that the end of the age was very near. Uh, Jesus almost certainly did say that um, that his own generation would see the end come. And so he, he knew he was going to die. Um, I don't think that Jesus thought he was dying for the sins of the world. Uh, I'm talking about the historical Jesus now. I mean, in the Gospels, of course, he, he does. I, I, think, I think he got on the wrong... I mean, it takes a long time to develop this argument. So, I, you know, I can't really do it in 30 seconds. But... I've got a few books that actually deal with this and try to show this. But I think Jesus was got on the wrong side of the law. I mean, he was crucified for political crimes, for claiming to be the future king of the Jews. Um, he obviously wasn't the king at the time. He was this unknown preacher from a remote rural area in the backwaters of Galilee. So, I mean, nobody thought he was a king. But he apparently was saying that he was going to be the king. 
and the Romans didn't allow other people to have kings. I mean, you know, this is their ruling. And so uh, Pontius Pilate condemned him to death. And I think it's just because, because of his preaching. I think Jesus thought, though, that he was going to be raised from the dead, like everyone else, and that when the kingdom came, he would be the ruler. Uh, and so there is, he, he's not dying for salvation. The salvation is going to happen anyway. Uh, what happens then is his followers later after his death start talking about his death being for salvation, and that becomes the dominant Christian message. But I don't think it's what Jesus preached. He preached that the kingdom's coming soon, and you better repent and prepare for it because it's going to be, you know, sometime like, you know, next Thursday, and if you're not ready, it's going to be a problem for you because uh, you'll be destroyed. Whereas if you're on God's side, you'll enter into the kingdom, and Jesus seems to have thought that he would be the ruler of this kingdom. The, the, that, that's another word for the Messiah. Uh, the Messiah is the future king of Israel. If they did not, though, believe that there was something that survived beyond the body, I mean, how did they come to terms with the fact that bodies decay? I mean, surely they must have been aware of that. Oh, yeah. So yeah, they're fully aware of it. It's a miracle. Uh, God is going to, God's going to restore the body back to life. And so there were all these questions. This is the earliest Christian belief, too, uh, that uh, before, before Christians believed in the soul going to heaven and hell, they also thought that there was going to be a resurrection very soon, that Jesus was the first to be raised, and the significance of Jesus being raised from the dead from the beginning. The very the, This is something people don't think about today, but when, when apocalyptic Jews like Jesus' followers came to think he got raised from the dead, their first thought was, it's begun. We're at the end of the age. Now the resurrection has started. And so they thought the whole thing was going to come to a crashing halt very, you know, right away. But then as time went on, obviously they, they started developing their views a bit more. But those who, who continue to believe in a resurrection, they, uh, it's still in the creed today. When you're in your Catholic church, you still said in the Nicene Creed that you believed in the resurrection of the dead. That is not your soul going to heaven. That's your body coming back to life. And Christians then had all sorts of debates about like, well, how's it going to happen? Because the pagans, the, the Romans all made fun of this. <laughs> what are you talking about? You mean like, what if you're born with a birth defect? Are you going to have it forever? What if you've had your arm amputated? Are you going to have your arm or not? So if your entire body comes back, does that mean that all of the hair you ever had is going to come with you? Aren't you going to be rather hairy? And what about your fingernails? And, you know, so, like, <laughs> so they had all these objections. And Christians had to answer these. And some of them got kind of complicated. Like, if you die at sea and you fall into the ocean and fish eat your body, and so your body becomes part of the fish, and then a fisherman catches the fish and eats the fish, so part of your body becomes part of the fisherman's body. When the resurrection happens, who gets those parts? <laughs> <laughs> so now I see the need for the conception of a soul. But your book also doesn't suggest that that's where it came from. I mean, it, may, it would make sense to me if then they were like, oh, there must be something that supersedes the body. This must have been, a, a, you know, some kind of metaphor. And here we are. Let's let's now conceive of this whole idea of the soul. But but that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems that this comes from, uh, you know, the Greek perspective. So can you bridge that for us? Yeah. So, um, yeah, the reason it caught on in Christianity is because there's an amalgam between what Jesus taught and what the Greeks had taught. The Greek idea was precisely that there is a soul, and there's a separation of the soul and the body that happens at death, and the soul lives on. This is a major teaching of Plato. Um, it was probably around before Plato. Plato, uh, Plato was writing about 400 years before Jesus. 
before Jesus' ministry, and he, in a number of his dialogues, he argues that the soul is uh, immortal. Um, the body dies, but the soul lives on. And Plato actually told uh, several stories. He calls them myths. Uh, the word muthos in Greek, myth, mean really just means story. But it, it, for Plato, it's a story that carries a point. Uh, and he tells several myths about the afterlife in several of his dialogues in which people who are uh, righteous are rewarded and people who are wicked are punished. Plato especially thought that those who lived uh, philosophical lives, being concerned about uh, doing what is right and knowing the truth and pursuing virtue, uh, they would have really good lives after death. And people who pursue pleasure, who are interested in their body rather than their soul, they're going to have a miserable afterlife. And so this was the Greek teaching, that your soul lives on and gets rewarded or punished. Now, I'm not saying that every Greek thought that. A lot of Greeks and then later Romans thought that you died and that was the end of the story. But there was this very important aspect of Greek thought that said the soul lives on after the body. And what ended up happening in Christianity is that Jesus taught that the resurrection is going to happen soon. Paul taught that the resurrection is going to happen soon. The book of Revelation taught that the resurrection is going to happen soon. And it didn't happen. <laughs> and it goes on and on and on. And as time goes on, uh, most people converting to Christianity don't, don't come out of Jewish backgrounds, but come out of pagan backgrounds, which means they were raised with Greek thought, which means that they were raised to think that the soul is immortal. And so they transformed Jesus' teaching of the resurrection of the body into the belief of the immortality of the soul, and that becomes the Christian view. And so, you know, I think for a lot of people, this idea that the soul lives on in an afterlife, that we can be rejoined with people that we lost, whom we loved, um, that there is some justice that happens, which we fail to see in this world, is very comforting, uh, especially when you're faced with uncertainty, when you're faced with, you know, ha with, with the death of a loved one or your own mortality. And so I wonder whether this in some ways became an inevitability, uh, you know, given the, these beliefs, or whether this is like, what, like, what, what do you think about, you know, were we always headed in a direction in which our human brains would latch on to something that is less scary than there is nothing after we die? Yeah, I think there's something to that. And, you know, there, you know, the two big options are always the death is the end of the story, which is the which is the view of you know, most of the Old Testament and for a lot of people in the ancient world and that the other views that we live on. And I think the idea that we live on is, um, I don't think it caught on so much because of, it provided comfort, although that becomes something that's really important. It became, became something really important. And it's really important to a lot of people today. My sense is that the reason it caught on is because it just was so difficult to imagine not existing. You know, the only time we have, ever since we've been able to think, we have existed. And so when you think about yourself, you just, it's, you can't really think about not existing. I mean, you know, you didn't really exist before you're born. At least most of us know that. But the idea that you're alive now, it just seems, it just seems like you can't imagine not being alive anymore because you've never been able to be that way since you've had imagination. But then what ends up happening is once the afterlife becomes this choice of good and evil, you know, if you're good, you're going to go to heaven. Well, so, so are you, you know, your parents will be there and your siblings will be there and your friends will be there. And so you'll be reunited. And then that's a reinforcement, I think. 
for this idea. And I think it's one of the leading reasons people are unwilling to give up the idea of an afterlife is because they really very much, uh, there are things about this life that they very much enjoy and they want to continue those. And, you know, you you end your book with uh, choosing, taking sides a little bit and, and choosing Socrates' version of what happens as kind of your your favorite version. So can you tell us what that is and, and why that was your choice? Yeah. So, um, so let me back, let me just, the backstory is that the view that develops in Christianity that your soul goes to heaven or hell ended up being a problem. Uh, I mean, the reason for it is what you said earlier is that it's for justice because the, the wicked should be punished and the righteous should, should be rewarded. But on the other hand, it doesn't really make sense if your soul is inter- eternal. Because if you if you're a sinner for say 30 years, and suppose you're a moderate sinner, you know, but you go to hell because you're a moderate sinner, and you're not you're not punished for 30 years, kind of mildly. You're tortured for 30 trillion years, and that's just the beginning. Well, that can't be right. And so, uh, yeah, so I don't think that's right. Socrates had a different solution. Socrates at his trial, he's on trial for uh, offenses against the state, and it, it would bring the death sentence. And he tried to explain to the jury why uh, it was okay with him to die. And he wasn't going to do anything to get out of it because he hadn't done anything wrong to begin with. He's not going to do anything wrong to correct it because why do something wrong? He doesn't know if death is a, a, a good thing or not, but he says probably it's two choices. He doesn't believe in a hell, Socrates. He says, look, either it's, it's one of two things. Either what happens is when you die, you live on a life similar to this one, uh, but there won't be any kind of restrictions and you'll have eternity with other people and you'll be able to have conversations with people for as long as you want. And for him, Socrates, who believed in dialogue, this was paradise. I mean, he could talk to Homer and Hesiod and all the great people of his Greek past. And so he said, that would be great. And since if it's not that, the alternative is that it's like going to sleep and being unconscious. Everybody likes a long, deep, dreamless sleep. And that's what it would be like. So that would be good too. And so the choices are either uh, going on uh, without any consciousness, not being bothered by it, uh, but actually, you know, if you could enjoy anything, you'd enjoy it, or having a good good alternative. And so the those are Socrates' alternatives, and, and they're the ones I hold to, too. I, mean, I, I, think, I think Socrates and Plato both really thought that death was the end of the story, and that's pretty much what I think, too. But if it's not that, I certainly don't think I'm going to be tortured for 30 trillion years and then, like, just to start with. Uh, I think uh, just it'll either be good or it'll be nothing. So I want to remind our listeners that um, Bart Ehrman's book, Heaven and Hell, A History of the Afterlife, is now available at booksellers everywhere. And I-, I want to take that idea just one step further. And I know this is not your domain of expertise, but I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about this, because, you know, you are so well-read and such a great scholar and your 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 ideas are always so interesting. So what if Socrates was right in the sense and 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 um, those conversations that you could have with others came in the form of being able to digitally upload your consciousness. <laughs> you know, let's say we were in a position where we were able to somehow create a digital version of our brains that had a, a, an immortality. What do you think about the afterlife then? And I know it's kind of unfair to ask this question of you, but you've thought so much about how people have conceived of this notion over thousands of years. And I wonder if you've kind of looked into the future and, and thought about how this how we might conceive of it in that possible potential future. 
Yeah, so uh, I have thought about it, and uh, you know, obviously, people are working on it. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I I think anything that is of that cosmic proportion in terms of personal existence, it's I think it's impossible to know what it would be like. I think almost everybody would. I think well, everybody I know would find it very unpleasant uh, because we just you know. Uh, you know, when I'm done here, I'm going to have a nice red wine, you know, and tonight I'm going to. And so, like, there are physical things that I cherish and I would, I think I'd be miserable without them. And it'd be more like, you know, nobody wants to be have a, you know, have the locked in syndrome. I mean, that is not what we want. And wouldn't it be kind of like that? On the other hand, if that's kind of what the universe becomes, uh and by the way, I just think it's completely ridiculous because I don't think it's going to happen because the universe is not going to be around forever. Uh, I mean, you know, the idea that that's going to prolong your life. OK, maybe, you know, maybe kind of for a while, but uh, <laughs> it gonna be trillions of years. And then that's just beginning with this. This universe is not around anymore. So uh, so it's kind of it's another pursuit for immortality that I think it just ain't going to work. If it did work, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think I'd enjoy it, but I don't know. Maybe maybe I'd like to. Maybe I'd like it. I don't know. I, I just hope there's some way for somebody to pull the plug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think to your point, there is this kind of the embodiment that there is the sense that we are tied to our bodies in a way that is fundamental to who we are. Uh, is is I think even where a lot of neuroscientists are going in in terms of our understanding of the brain that it just would not would not exist in a vat in any way, shape, or form in the same with the same experience for us. All right. Well, Bart Ehrman, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Can I just say one thing before getting on? Please. If people are interested in uh, this kind of thing or the kind of thing that I do generally, I have a, a blog uh, that's called, just called the Bart Ehrman blog that focuses on New Testament, early Christianity, everything related to that. And uh, they should check it out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Okay, great. Thank you. One of the things I really loved about this book is that it doesn't end in a doomsday prophecy. It doesn't say that life is necessarily, or I suppose the lack of it, terrible after we die. But rather, even if there is nothing there, we won't know the difference. So there's nothing to fear. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis, and I'll see you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.